Hello, Village Church. It is so good to be with you again. Several years ago, I decided to surprise my wife, who was then my girlfriend at the time, with tickets to go see a Broadway show. She had been pining over it for months, ever since I took my good friend and came back raving about it. She was incredibly jealous, and I figured that I could win incredible, huge amounts of boyfriend points if I took her as one of our first dates. We would go to Chicago and see a show and then go get some food, and we'd have a night in the city and just kind of like hang out, just exploring everything. And let me tell you, when we saw this show the second time, it was my second time and her first time seeing the show, it absolutely did not disappoint. The show, of course, is Hamilton. The show is based on the $10 Founding Father Without a Father, and it has once again taken the national conversation. It's based on the life and legacy of Alexander Hamilton, but it develops historical figures like Jefferson, Washington, Madison, Aaron Burr, and the heroine of the play, Eliza, Hamilton's wife. And there are so many reasons this production is popular. It has outstanding costuming, um, remarkably talented performers, well-developed characters, but it has uniquely hit a cultural nerve because of what I'd argue are two main factors. The musical style and casting. The play primarily pulls from jazz, R&B, hip-hop, and rap tradition. Um, It makes the story feel contemporary, and it's unlike anything that's ever happened in Broadway. And then the casting, uh, during the casting process, they wanted the best actors they could find, and they ended up with a majority of the roles played by people of color. And according to creator Lin-Manuel Miranda, this happened by complete accident, but it had a profound effect. People of all ethnicities started to see themselves in the story of the Founding Fathers. They started connecting to people like Hamilton and Burr and their struggle. And so when you combined the music with the casting, with the story and everything, it captured the national imagination. So here's the point. I mean, first off, I am absolutely a Hamilton nerd and proud of it. And little known fact, it draws from my favorite TV show, The West Wing, and you can like watch for yourself on Disney Plus and see the little points. But the more important point of why I reference Hamilton is because people were enraptured by this production. This story captured people's imagination. They are more than just nice fables from the past, but they capture our imagination in a way in which people saw themselves as participating in the story of Hamilton, in the rivalry of Hamilton and Burr, in the drive for success, in the desire to not waste your one shot that you've got. We see ourselves in them, and they say something about us. And so today we're continuing our journey through the Exodus, and we are at the climax of the story. It's all been leading up to this, the crossing of the Red Sea. This story of deliverance, it looms large in the Hebrew consciousness. 
And they return back to it over and over again because this is their formation story. This is the story they return to in difficulty. This is where they see the power of God. This is their formative, national, imaginative story. In Hebrew consciousness, you cannot overestimate the potency and significance of the story of the Red Sea deliverance. So, as a review, where we left off last week, Israel had fled Egypt and God rerouted them the way of the shorter but more dangerous path that would have taken them through enemy territory. He routes them right past the Egyptians so they don't even have to go near them so as to face war. God knew they weren't ready for war. And then you also saw that Moses was carrying the bones of Joseph with him as a way to carry the very promises of God that God had made to the four fathers about Israel's ultimate deliverance and possession of the promised land. And so God then leads two million, nearly two million people by a pillar of fire and cloud. And the text specifically notes that the pillars did not depart before the people. God was with them the whole way. He never left. It never faded, not even for a moment. So then We get into the next chapter of Exodus 14, and it all kicks off with God giving specific instructions to Moses on where to camp. They're supposed to camp at the edge of this shore, and they are in the wilderness. Now, if you are a nation on the run from Egypt, and you're trying to get your bearing as a new people, this encampment doesn't make any sense. You don't have boats to cross the water. You certainly aren't staying there because you're in the middle of the wilderness and you're militarily vulnerable because you are pinned in on both sides. You have absolutely nowhere to go. But this is exactly the reason that God tells Moses to camp there. In fact, he tells him that specifically to make it look like Israel is easy pickings. So God lets Moses into his thinking in verse three. This is what God says. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And so Pharaoh will think they are lost and helpless. Verse four, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, the scene then jumps from this conversation between God and Moses into Pharaoh's Egyptian court where you see Pharaoh's hard heart ever hardening in real time. It's kind of like the screen says, meanwhile, in Pharaoh's court. He comes to his senses, Pharaoh does, that he realizes his entire economic system has just walked through the front door and that threatens Egypt's global superpower. And so Pharaoh then changes his mind. Pharaoh then, it says, at the tail end of verse 6, made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Verse 9, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them. So the way that I read this text is if you've ever seen the 2009 Star Trek film, this is all I think of when I read this passage. Fire everything! (laughs) 
Pharaoh is firing everything he has. He's in a chariot. He's brought his special operations chariot unit, his chariot corps with officers and military strategy and the necessary support and supply chains. And oh, he's got more chariots. The charioteers had high-powered horses, often more than one pulling one chariot, and that held a driver and often archers with plenty of ammunition. Sometimes the charioteers are even depicted with three or four soldiers to accommodate closer combat. These were the elite units of ancient Egyptian warfare, and they were utilized as both a first strike capability and a way to seal victory for the kingdom. These guys are terrifying. They are not to be trifled with. So to use Martin Luther King's language here, Egypt symbolized evil in the form of humiliating oppression, ungodly exploitation, and crushing domination. This is Egyptian domination. This is the modern-day equivalence of bringing a couple Black Hawk helicopters, some tanks, to a knife fight. It's overwhelming force. That's clearly Pharaoh's goal, to completely overwhelm the people that he had just released from slavery. And so it's no surprise that when we jump to verse 10, this is how the people respond. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now pay attention to what they say when they're fearful. Verse 11, they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die here. Moses, why in the world, what's your, why are you doing this? Why did we leave? Why did we follow you? So consider what they're looking at. They're looking at the most elite superpower fighting force in the world. Bear down untired men, women, and children. They are hungry. They have been wandering. They do not have home. And they are just in the wilderness, pinned on both sides. They have no boats. They have no military to match. And they will surely be cut down by this elite fighting force who have just lost their firstborn sons and are out for revenge. Their bodies are surely in fight or flight mode, but they can do neither. They are ineffective fighters and they cannot go anywhere. Now, a number of commentators look at this response of Israel and say, how could they have turned against Moses and distrusted God? And they look at the sarcasm, the hyperbole, and the fantasy thinking of Israel in this moment, and they scorn them for such little faith. But my observation and my response to the commentators is, if you and I were there, this would be us too. Because Israel sees their death sentence on the horizon, and any hope that they could be free, it vanished once they saw the Egyptian soldiers. 
And it doesn't take long for the self-talk to start. I mean, it was foolish for me to believe that I could be free. Why would I listen to Moses anyway? Sure, Yahweh did about 10 plagues and got us here, but there's a logical explanation for that. Or, all right, God might have done this, but surely he's kind of done with us and moved on like every other God we've seen before. There's no escape, Moses. Why would you take us here to die? If you're that bad of a leader, why would you do this? Now, we're tempted to judge Israel from the outside, knowing the conversations that are happening between Moses and God. Because remember, we have knowledge of what God's been saying to Moses this whole time. We know all the way back from Exodus chapter 3 for what God's plan has been. We've been clued in on what God's purposes are for Egypt. And we know that this is playing into God's grand plan, but Israel has no idea. We can put together that God has been providing for Israel for centuries. I mean, after all, we've just seen God send plague after plague to free his people. But before we critique Israel here, it's pretty key for us to recognize that Israel is us. I mean, how many of us have seen God miraculously provide for our family, for our community, for our city? And we believe that he won't answer our prayers anymore. How many of us look at how God has been kind or generous to other people and then grown jealous or resentful of what God's given them? How many of us join in on church? We sing songs, we listen to the message, we connect in community, and then we view society and culture as a war to be won instead of a neighbor to love. They're fearful. They've lost all hope. And they are doomed. I mean, what would you expect from God right now? What would you expect God to say to Israel in this moment? When you experience doubts or frustrations or when you experience this own internal turmoil, what do you think God says to you? Perhaps might be a better question. Maybe you expect a word of rebuke. Maybe a divine, how could you do this? How could you believe this? How could you say this? How could you turn on me and Moses? Maybe a spiritual smack over the head. But that isn't what happens at all. Let's see what Moses does. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, he said, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. This is key. Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Commentator uh, Terence Fretheim says this about the passage. He says, This dispirited and just released from slavery people does not need a word of condemnation from either commentators or Moses. Moses understands this and brings a word of pure gospel to them. Moses brings them good news. And it's vitally important that we read these words of Moses as pure gospel. 
as Western Americanized, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, capitalistic people, our first inclination is to read this passage of fear not, stand firm, see the salvation, the Lord will fight for you and you've only to be silent. Our first inclination is to read this passage in one of two ways. First, our inclination is to read this passage as if it's a coaching conversation between God and Israel, that somehow they can just be better, that if they buck up, they'll be able to face their giants, they'll conquer it, and they'll be good to go. Or we read this passage as a rebuke where God is getting just a little angry, just a little ticked at the ungrateful people. And so we sometimes see God as the coach. Or God is this weird, frustrated dad. And if we see either God as the coach or the frustrated one, that will be what we apply to our lives, whether we recognize it or not. Because it's not a conscious move on our part. And if we do this, rather than letting the text shape us in seeing this text as a move of pure gospel... We'll end up with misshapen theology, a fear-filled prayer life, and disordered desires. Because that's not what happened. Moses is giving them pure gospel. This is God giving his people words of grace and love and tenderness. So let's take a look. We'll break it down. This is what Moses says. He says, fear not. This is a word of assurance. It's spoken when God shows up or the angel of the Lord is present. It's reassurance that God is present and that God will work for them. It's it's God saying, no, no, no. There's no need to fear in this moment. I see why you are fearing, but that's not necessary. Think to the shepherds who are out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. What does the angel say to them? Fear not. The next thing he says is stand firm. Stand firm. They're not to fight or use any of their swords. You don't need to flee or go to your battle stations. Stand ready, but stand ready for what? And that's where the last part of this phrase to see the salvation of the Lord. And so we fear not, we stand firm, and then we what? See the salvation of the Lord. We just see. We just observe. We just watch. We just stand there and watch. Don't fear, stand firm and just watch. And this word salvation, or in Hebrew it's Yeshua, brings with it saving deliverance, help. It's the sense that God will address and that God alone will will fix this issue. He'll do it today. You're over here looking at the Egyptians, but look at what God will do. Instead of watching the Egyptians on the horizon, watch for the salvation of the Lord. And it closes with this. Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, And you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you. And what's your job? Just watch it happen. Now, God's not commanding pure silence as if it's not okay to pray. 
He's saying, I recognize why you are complaining in anxiety and fear. So hush, there is no need for that. Just watch it happen. Just watch it happen. But don't you see, Moses, just watch it happen. But we can't make this happen. Just watch it happen. But we're hemmed in on both sides. We have nowhere to go. Just watch it happen. And so let's continue the story. And so nightfall comes and God moves to the base of the camp in the pillar of fire. And he ends up as an obstruction in between the Egyptian army and Israel. And the Egyptians must have decided to hold off their assault until morning. That's when they would get their revenge. And over the course of the evening, Moses follows the commands of God and stretches his hand over the waters that are right behind the encampment. And they actually part. And this is perhaps what's most surprising about the passage because the text references it twice. The ground is dry. So it's not just that the waters part and that you still have this mossy, buggy, you know, whatever, quicksandy type experience. It's that the, wa- the ground is actually dry. There's no quicksand. They're not losing their carts and animals. No one is getting stuck. So their night operation begins and they walk across on dry ground all the way to the other side. Now, the Egyptians apparently don't hear any of this chaos. I have no idea why. But they wake up at dawn ready to finish them off or ready to begin their onslaught. And they realize that everybody's gone. But if they acted, maybe they could pursue them because at that point, the waters were still open. Maybe they could get some of their chariots through, and, but God wasn't having it. God was not going to let that happen. So he started to let what seems like from the text, a little bit of water seep through to make the seabed quicksand. And so jump down to verse 24. And in the morning... And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. They started to sink. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now notice even just the connection The Lord fights for you. You have only to be silent. And now it's coming from the mouth of the Egyptians. Their recognition. The Lord fights for them. But before they can actually leave this seabed, uh, God commands Moses to stretch out his hand and bring the torrent of water back upon the Egyptians. Now, what was a chaotic scene grows even more frenzied as the horses and chariots are swallowed up and the armor of the Egyptians makes them sink. And Pharaoh watches as his entire army dies. Not one of them remained, the text says. So get this. This is how the story ends. Verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. This entire story ends with Israel standing on the opposite shore 
watching dead Egyptians float up to them, destroyed. So it should be no surprise that this story captures the imagination of biblical writers throughout the First and Second Testament, throughout the Old and New Testament. The gospel writers draw heavily from this story, especially John. Jesus himself draws from this on a number of occasions, but especially in the transfiguration, check it out. And the church sees themselves as caught up in the continuation of the Exodus narrative. And I'm telling you, if you read through the New Testament with the eyes of this deliverance narrative, you will see how Israel's imagination has been formed and shaped and how that changed the direction of the church. And, but it continued long after the biblical canon closed. Christians drew significant meaning from this story. Now, when they see this story, they saw purpose in persecution, strength in suffering, hope in hopelessness. They saw that God made a way when there was no way. And so it should even be no surprise to us that during the chattel slavery period in American history, slave masters produced a slave Bible for their enslaved peoples that intentionally omitted this deliverance narrative and revelation. They omitted any hope for deliverance and future hope. Next to the creation narrative, this deliverance narrative is the most fundamental and foundational story for Israel and the church. Here's why. Because this story, perhaps above all or most other stories in the scriptures, shows us what it means to follow this God. Author and pastor Jeff Vanderstelt has a helpful series of four questions to help Christians get to the bottom of biblical texts, particularly for narrative genres like the ones we have here. And I've modified and added a couple here and there, and I'll tell you that when we get there. But I'd encourage you to write these down, and you'll see them on the screen. I'd encourage you to write these down and bring them uh, to your own Bible reading as they will be a helpful guide for you to get to the bottom of what's going on. And here's why we'll walk through this. Because my goal whenever I teach here is not only to be culturally connective and hopefully rhetorically helpful and maybe a little fun, but because I want us to understand what's actually happening in the text. To grasp it for ourselves. You're no longer having to rely on me just to tell you what's going on or pastors to tell you what's going on, but you can learn. That's at the central of the Christian message. That's the reason, we can't get into it, but the reason why the biblical history lines up with it sitting on your lap is because Christians in ages past believe you should read your Bible too and you should see what God says to you as well. And so these questions, these four questions that we'll go through, can help you move from the words on the page to seeing what it's actually saying about God and how you fit in. So for this particular moment, it will help us get a clearer picture as to why this has occupied the Christian imagination. And as a side note, this is a great exercise for everyone, the whole family. They sound like really simple questions, but I'm telling you, it's really helpful. So question number one, what has God done? Question one, 
What has God done? What has God done? When we come to a narrative like this, we want to get a clear picture about what God is actually doing here. So if you zoom in and if you zoom out, you should get different perspectives and different pictures. So if we zoom out and take a big picture view, what's going on? How, how is God acting? What are some of the ways in which he's spoken? How has he intervened in the story? How has he changed a character's trajectory? How has he changed the course of history in this story? And so if I just briefly walk through the passage, I notice that God in verse 1 speaks to Moses, that he's intentional about where to place Israel in verse 2. He anticipates and even plans for Israel's victory, verses 2 through 4. He's patient with Israel, even sending a word of gospel assurance through Moses. He encourages people to respond in faith by telling them to move forward into the sea, even if they don't see the effects yet in verse 15. He does the miraculous by parting the sea in 21. He makes their path firm and straight by making the, dry, the ground dry, which is, again, unheard of in verse 22. He protects them with a pillar of cloud and fire. He is in the pillar of cloud and fire. Verse 24. He invites participation by allowing Moses to control the seas with his staff. Verse 26. He provides a way, literally a way out when there was no way out. Verse 29. He defeats evil in verse 30. He brings justice by destroying the Egyptians by water when earlier Israel's sons were killed by the Nile River. He fights for his people. And so if we were to summarize all of this action, we notice that God delivers his people. He does not do a halfway deliverance, but he gets them completely out of Egypt. He destroys Israel and he secures victory. Now we could go on and we could pull other things about what God is doing in this text, but you get the picture. So let's move on to question two. Who is God? Question two is who is God? This question encourages us to think a step beyond just the actions of God. And this encourages us to translate the actions of God into identity statements. And just as a total side note, if you ever read his book, Gospel Fluency, Jeff actually flips these questions one and two, and that's totally fine. It's whatever works for you. But I think it's really helpful to show the actions of God leading to the identity of God. Because here we make statements about who God is at his core. So if I was to do this for me, the action that you would see is me loving my wife and serving my wife. And that's because I am at my core being a husband. That is an identity marker that defines me. We move from action to identity. So when we distill down all of the action statements about God, who is God in this text? Well, he's a deliverer. He is a provider. God is a protector. God is a conqueror over evil and the forces that exploit his people. And so now we're getting a clearer picture of what this text is actually saying about God. It's shown us, we've been able to look at what he's done. We've taken a look at now, what does that mean about who he is? Now on to question three. Who are we? Therefore, who are we? 
As Christians, our identity comes from our connection with God himself. We are children of God because he is our heavenly father. We are in the family of God because Jesus is our brother and made a way for our adoption. We are one with God because the spirit is our intercessor and bond with God. So we look at the nature of God and connect that if God is our deliverer, then who are we? If God is our deliverer, then who are we? Well, we are the rescued ones. If God is our provider, then we are the ones who are dependent on him. If God is our protector, and and then we are his cherished ones. We are his beloved people. We are loved by God. If God is the conqueror of evil, so we, you see what I'm saying? So I would encourage you in your personal time to spend some time thinking through this. If God is the conquering hero, what does that make us? Who does that make us? Are we bound to God himself? How do we participate in this? What does this make us for our identity? Last question, question number four. How then shall we live? How then shall we live? Just like God's action flows from his identity, so too we want our action to flow from our core identity in Jesus. Think about it like a parabola. We follow God's actions to understand who he is and what he's like, and that gives us clarity about our identity, and then that flows into how we properly respond. The problem is when we sin, it's when our identity is mismatched with our actions. And so the task is to go, who are we really? And what does that mean about what I'm doing here? And that's what repentance is. It's bringing our identity back into alignment with our actions, bringing our identity back into alignment with who God is in himself. And so action to identity, identity to action. So here's the question. If you truly understood and believe that you are a rescued one from God, a dependent one on God, and that you are cherished from God, how does this change you? How does this change your story? How does this change the way you view yourself? How about others? How, what would happen if you actually viewed yourself as someone who was cherished by God, not tolerated by God, cherished by God? And how would that change how you approach the church or your neighbor? I'd argue the main reason that the American church is ineffective is because we have fundamentally neglected our identity received from God. Not saying all churches are ineffective, but one of the reasons the American church is largely ineffective is because we have neglected our identity from God. We have forgotten that we are his cherished people. We have forgotten that we too are rescued. We have forgotten that we are completely dependent on him and that his generosity and his grace floats us along and we do not earn it or make it happen. And so when we look down on others, when we belittle, when we hold grudges, when we complain, when we, complain we are out of sync with our received identity from God himself. But when the church... When the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit to see the beauty and victory of Jesus, and we claim that identity as our own because we've received it from the Spirit, and Jesus actually dwells in us, 
The church is absolutely unstoppable. The church is unmatched. I mean, you can persecute us. You can penalize us. You can take our land. You can try and hold us down. You can beat us. You can ridicule us. You can mock us. You can try and sow division. But when the church is committed to living out of its identity of God himself, then we are the people of rescue. We are the people of dependence. Then we are the people of God's own. Then we spread that love out. Like when the church truly believes the church is the beloved of God. It doesn't make us close our doors. It makes us open them and welcome them and love and pour out all that love on our neighbor and our families and even ourselves. Once again, in the words of Dr. King, I'm reading his book, Strength to Love, and it's blowing my mind. I highly recommend it, but we'll keep going. Once again, in the words of Dr. King, to our most bitter opponents... We say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do unto us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory or in the words of missionary Leslie Newbingen he writes we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer our action flows from our identity but often we fail And this is why I suggest adding two more questions to Jeff's original four. I suggest we add two more that deal with failure and Christ succeeding on our behalf. So question number five would be, how do we or I fail? And then question six would be, how does Christ succeed or provide for me? So I encourage you to make your way through these questions on your own time. An end in awe of Jesus. Despite our failure, despite our grumbling, despite our faithlessness, despite our hopelessness, despite our fear, Christ himself is victorious over sin and death. Christ delivered us from evil inside and outside. Christ is our beloved. He is the one who rescues us. Jesus is the better Moses, where when we are hopeless, when we are trapped on every side, when we are panicking and berating God for putting us in this position, Jesus is the better Moses, who doesn't chastise us, but speaks gospel hope, who says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, And you have only to be silent. 
Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful that it meets us in our present moment. I'm grateful that while we are frenzied, while we are fearful, while many of us feel hopeless, your word to us is not one of rebuke, is not one of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, it's not one of just manifest more faith or why wouldn't you just get along. It is the word of gospel hope. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord because you have already fought for us. We did nothing in the exchange. And Jesus, you give us your life. You give us your love. You give us your affection. And you give us your spirit to walk boldly into the parted seas, trusting you that you will deliver us. We love you. Amen.